you are Elder Moses. Church, let's continue to worship the Lord with the Word of God and the preached Word of God. And this, uh, this day, the sermon text is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to 18. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7 to 18. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open your Bible and put it in front of you because I will keep on referring to it. All right? Otherwise, you can refer to the uh, screen, but uh, you won't capture everything. So I encourage you to open your Bible and, uh, and follow me through the sermon. For you, those at home, right, you, have, uh, you will have to have your Bible with you okay, in order to follow the sermon as well. So I'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exit in its glory. Verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when, one's when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory, one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Let's come before Him and pray. And respond to Him. O Lord, indeed, for you are Spirit. And Lord, you have sent the Holy Spirit to be among us. That Lord, your will and your word will be revealed. And this day, Lord, we ask for you to reveal to us, convict us from within, that we may be transformed to the likeness of Christ, which is of permanent glory. O oh Lord, Help us to come 
today to listen, not to just amen. Help us to come before you to hunger for your word, hunger for true transformation. That Lord, we will indeed do according to your word and your instructions. So Lord, help us then to hear, not just with our mind, but with our heart, wholeheartedly. And Lord, draw our attention to you and Lord, block up the distractions that we have always been so easily succumbed to. Help us indeed, for the sermon will speak your word. In Christ's name, we do pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of the saying or the idea, the only constant in life is change? The only constant in life is change. Do you think this is a new idea? Now, which century do you think that it first originated? In the 1900s? Uh, in the 1800s? 1500s? 500? 180? It was not. In fact, it is 2,000, almost 2,500 years ago. It originated way back in the mid-500 BC by Herak. Heraclitus, all right, is a philosopher in the ancient Turkey, uh, in the city of Ephesus. Then, after almost 200 years later, Plato, all right, one of the most well-known philosophers in our time, he referred to uh, Heraclitus, and he picked up this idea and wrote, Heraclitus, I believe, says that all things pass and nothing stays, and comparing existing things to the floor of a river, he says you could not step twice into the same river. Now hearing this, some of us who dislike or even loathed the idea of change, freedom and, and, and sudden changes are, are seemingly chaotic. And we scream for, I want control, I want, I want some peace, I want some stability here, don't, don't change. Now, for the skeptic of change, you are right to ask the purpose of change. Does control, does peace, does progress, does excitement serves any meaningful purpose? Moreover, you have tried to change for the better, but the changes are never permanent or were never permanent. You keep kind of flip-flopping you know, for better or for worse. And you end up right back at where you were many years before. Could we ever get away from meaningless or purposeless changes? And God's answer is yes in the Bible. Now, he has a good news for all of us through the heartfelt teaching and reasoning of the Apostle Paul in our text today. Now, in his argument for freedom from chaotic changes and living, he promotes transformation. In verse 18, the word transformed in Greek is metamorpho. Right? Metamorpho. It is not simply change. There is another Greek word uh, used for change, and that word is alasso. Not Korean, by the way. Yeah? Not, yeah. Alasso, through the Bible. So there is the word change throughout the Bible, but it's not 
the same word here, uh, used here that is transformed. Uh, hence, Paul used the word metamorpho, transformed, specifically here. The, the, the word only occurs four times in the Bible. Twice in uh, the Gospel, one time in Matthew, one time in Mark, at Jesus' transfiguration, specifically. And then twice in Paul's letter, in Romans 12, and then here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is where we get our English word, metamorphosis in biology. Now, where have we learned this? Or where have we learned this, right? Uh, some of you students here, primary school or secondary school, or even JC, metamorphosis, where do you learn this? Have you, have you um, heard or did the experiment? I don't know if it's called an experiment, but you know, you observe a caterpillar, right? Morphing into a butterfly. Yeah? Children, have you bought some of this before? I think we haven't, huh? We should try it with you sometime, okay? We did it. Right? We bought the, 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 the caterpillar and, and watched it to become a cocoon and after that become a butterfly. Uh, for hours, I think, did it succeed? No, it didn't succeed, unfortunately. Right. But uh, that's what it is, all right? A caterpillar morphing into a butterfly. The caterpillar actually fulfills its design and purpose when it's being transformed and take flight as a butterfly. Accordingly, to transform is to meaningfully fulfill a purpose. Now, for our text, the big idea of the sermon is we are being transformed by the Spirit in ministry and life to reflect the glory of our Lord. So it's not meaningless change. Transformation by the Spirit is to reflect the glory of our Lord. So if the big idea is kind of too many words for you, you can remember, you know, just this within these 10 words is transformed by the Spirit to reflect the glory of our Lord. All right, that's the big idea for today. Now, to be clear, the ministry that we are talking about is not the parliament ministry. Okay? The ministry we are talking about is a Christian work of service in life. Generally, there are two primary forms of service, or service, ministry service. Now, the first form of ministry is a community Christian service. Uh, within a church or representing the church. The second form of ministry is a personal Christian service in a school, workplace, uh, and even in a family, all right? Simpler as a family. So Paul is encouraging the church of Corinth to go through a process of transformation to fulfill God's purpose and design for her. She is to reflect the glory of the Lord. Now, in order to do that, First, uh, firstly, he urges them to turn away from gazing at the fading glory of the old form of ministry and life. And the old form of ministry and life was based on the mistaken view of the old covenant. All right? And this is spelled out in uh, verse 14. Then they need to turn to face the new form of ministry and life with the gospel. And as a result, of turning away from the old form and turning to face the new form, they would actually reflect the transforming ministry and life of the Holy Spirit. So in the same way, the process of transformation for all of us 
applying to us individually and as the church as a whole. Accordingly, the sermon outline for us is, firstly, to turn away from gazing at the fading glory of the old form of ministry and life. And secondly, to face the new form of ministry and life with the gospel. And thirdly, a mask to reflect the transforming ministry and life of the Spirit. So we will unpack each point by answering three questions, all right? So uh, in case you, you know when I'm going through the points, you kind of are lost. But just remember that I'm going through with these three questions in mind. What is the belief? What kind of minister introducing that belief? And how or what is or how should we or how should the people respond? All right. So each point, as I unpack it, I'm answering three questions. What is the belief? What kind of minister? And how should the people be responding? Which then applies to us. All right. So now let's dive into the first point. Paul persuades the church to turn away from gazing at the fading glory of the old form of ministry and life. To be sure, old, not as in old-fashioned or untrendy, like aging or dated past five years, 10 years, you know, 50 years, or even 100 years. It is not, it is old because there is something new that came to be. All right. It is old because there is something new that can be. For example, you say that we move into a new house that has been around much longer than our old house. Right? So the new house is not really like age younger, but it's actually new because we move into something new as compared to the last house, something old. Uh, or uh, something older might not necessarily mean it's worse. For example... Do you know that older TVs built 30 years ago actually lasted much longer than the newer ones? Yeah, uh, just a product secret for you. Huh? Most of the products now are built to fail within five years. All right, TVs 30 years ago, they were built to last. I don't know for how long. Okay, if you can find them, they will be still around. Yeah, that's how it is. So old doesn't mean necessarily mean it's worse off, okay? So in our text, the old form of ministry is old because the church of Corinth did not act according to their new Christian belief. Now, what is the belief of the church of Corinth in the old form of ministry? Verses 7 and 9 imply that they believe their ministry is simply obliging and doing God's moral laws and stop there. Nothing else. In other words, their Lord is the moral law of God. But Paul says that the law brings with it the ministry of death in verse 7. Now, why is that so? That is because the moral law of God convicts the sin of man since no one can perfectly follow the moral laws. In that case, under God's perfect judgment, the moral law brings spiritual death to all natural men. And Moses... For that reason, Paul in verse 6 says, 
which is one verse before seven, of course. The letter kills. The letter is a reference to the moral law of God given to Moses. In the historical record of the book of Exodus, Moses received God's moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, written in two stone tablets. Can you imagine carrying your Bible, carrying two stones with you? Right? That is just how it was. And Moses was the one administering the law of God to his people. He was responsible, almost like as if he's solely responsible, in fact, for getting God's people to follow God's moral, moral law. As such, the moral law of God is also known as the Mosaic uh, law. And so what type of minister was Moses in the, form, uh, in the old form of ministry? He was the kind who veiled the truth about the fading glory of his ministry. The glory and shine on his face was temporary. In other words, the fading glory showed that Moses' ministry was not permanent. He veiled the truth. He covered up. Not because it was so shiny that the people cannot stand. No, he covered up because he don't want people to see the fading glory of his ministry. Now, to be sure, Moses didn't lie, but he was surely bothered by it. He cared a lot of how his people would think and perceive him as God's ordained minister. Now, what happened if they saw the, the glory of God is just leaving him as time passed? He was so bothered that he has to cover himself. He has to veil himself. He has to mask it, not let anybody else see Christians, when you first became a Christian, or even now, are you wearing a mask to hide your fading glory? Would you be hiding, masking behind your fading glory? Now, before we put, say, Moses down to, uh, to be a coward, you know, like, you know, and, 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 and in, in fact, Paul implied in verse 12 uh, that, that Moses was timid, afraid of the people. He's not bold, right? Before we put Moses down to, to say that he's a coward, let us figure the situation Moses was in. Now, Israel back then, it was 6, 000, uh, 600,000 men alone. So figure that with wife and children, that will amount to over a million people. You have a million people who is dependent on you. A million pairs of eyes or more looking at you, all right, ready to jump. So Israel was almost like a mob, ready to blame and run Moses down and condemn him for leading them out of their comfort captivity in Egypt. That was the pressure Moses was facing. Now the people of Israel knew that God, or rather Moses, met with God. And his face glowed like the sun. In fact, one translation will have it that his face radiated, radiated, not just shine, just radiating as if there's a, a, a light bulb on his face, boom, right? Switch on in broad daylight. 
right? As he came down from Mount Sinai, that must have been grand. That must have been, you know, uh, almost like a celebrity star, right? You know, you, you shine, your face shine, and, 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 and people are just looking at you without you even noticing. The people of Israel must have been very curious and almost in fear, definitely most mesmerized. In fact, the scripture will imply that they couldn't stop staring. They couldn't stop gazing. They couldn't, they were all fixated and looking at him like they were gazing at the stars at night. They were soaking up the presence and the glory of Moses, glorifying him instead of giving glory to God. And what do Moses do? Moses bathed in the moment. He kept quiet about the scene of Israel instead of turning them away from the scene of fixating on his fading glory and ministry and telling the people the truth that is fading because it's not permanent. They have turned then the ministry of the grace of God providing the Ten Commandments to guide them into a ministry of condemnation of their sins and condemnation of each other. It was so fixated at gazing at the passing glory of Moses that the minds, in fact, the scripture says the hearts, were hardened to the grace of God, as said in verse 14. Likewise, the church of Corinth was gradually hardening their minds to God's ministry of grace. They were hardening to God's saving grace, reaching out to them through the gospel ministers. Namely here, Paul and his colleagues. They were kind of backpedaling to the old form of ministry and life based on the law of Moses and the people of old. They were kind of backing down to a ministry of condemnation of the religions of the Jews. In other words, they were fixated on doing the old form of ministry in spite the new form has come. And the question for all of us is this, are we also fixated to gazing at the past glory of our lives, our ministry, stability, achievements even, and the good old days and the good old ways? Are we still gazing to the old ways that we are not aware it is temporary and its glory is fading away. Are we so fixated to past glory of life and ministry that we cannot see that the spirits leading the church into new ways of ministry and doing life? Have we received the gospel of grace and yet somehow we backpedaled to a ministry of condemnation of our lives. Now, what does the ministry of condemnation look like in our lives? It would look like dangerously throwing the Bible at one another this way. I'll just throw at you. That's God's word. Do it. Though we may not have the intention of killing each other with the Bible, hurling a certain volume or even translation at one another may just kill us. 
We weaponize the Bible commands against each other when it's meant to point us to the gospel of both the law and grace. For sure, we should begin with applying the law of Moses. But we do not stop there. We should aim to end well with the grace of Christ to those who repent. Now, we'll do mistake of both ends. We either ignore the law and say we apply grace straight away, or we say that we just hold on to the law and continue to condemn the person. That is not the gospel. The most important thing is going through the process between applying the law and grace. The law and God, uh, grace of God. Is there a process of repentance, grieving for the sins, and finally the forgiveness in your life? Is there transformation? Now, again, it is easier to go one direction, either condemnation or licentious grace. Not forgiving in a way that, not forgiving, all right? You, you kind of authorize even the waywardness of certain people. But, putting efforts to hold attention be, be, you know, between both the law and grace is where the transformation by the Spirit may happen. You got to go through the process. It's not just quoting the scripture and off with the scripture and saying, oh, I'm done. But it's not that. Have we gone through the process of letting the Spirit convict us? Or are we stuck in the cocoon of comfort of the good old days, the old life again, and the old form of ministry? So let us turn away from gazing at the fading glory of the old form of ministry and life that we may begin the process of transformation of our lives, ministry, and the church. So back to the text here, Paul is encouraging the church of Corinth to go through a transformation process to, uh, to do well in her ministry and life. So he persuades the church firstly to turn away from gazing at the fading glory of the old form of ministry. And then secondly, he urged the church to turn to face the new form of ministry and life with the gospel. So what is the, what is the belief of the new form of ministry and life? Verses 8 and 11 implies that Paul and his colleague believe that the Holy Spirit brings forward a new form of ministry and life with the gospel. The new ministry of the Spirit far exceeds uh, the glory of the old form. The new is brighter, more wholesome, and more beautiful than the old. The new is also permanent, lasting forever and not fading. The new form of ministry will last forever because Messiah, Savior of the world, has been unveiled as Jesus Christ. The Jews were kind of waiting for a long time for their Messiah. The Gentiles uh, were wondering if they will ever be saved for a long time as well. 
And the world was painfully waiting. It was in pain, laboring for the birth of Jesus Christ to save, redeem, and then restore her from the fallen state. And for these reasons, verse 16 points to Christ of the gospel as the Lord. In other words, Paul and his gospel minister believe that the Lord is Christ. The Lord is Christ, not the law of Moses. I say again, the Lord is Christ. The Lord is not the law of Moses. And what kind of ministers are they who believe that the Lord is Christ? Verse 12, verses 12 and 13 says that they are leaders different from Moses. They are multiple leaders leading the church together, but Moses was the one and only leader of Israel. They are always hopeful in the face of trouble and opposition, but Moses regularly gave up when he was opposed. They are bold to face. They are face, they are bold to face, they are upfront and they confront the church sin. But Moses veiled his face and gave in to their complaints and sins. They are unafraid to unveil their dependence on Christ, but Moses veiled and masked God's glory. Paul and his colleagues, gospel ministers, turned the church to Christ as their Savior and Lord. But Moses pointed Israel to God as their savior and genie. You want this? Ask from God, he will give you. You want that? Ask from God, he will give you. Israel treated God as their savior and genie. But the gospel ministers, Paul says no. Christ is not a genie. Christ is the Lord and Savior. How should the people respond to the new form of ministry and life then? Then Paul implied in the negative in verse 14. They should not harden their minds, as in they should not dull their minds and senses with the old form of ministry. Now in the new form of ministry, verse 14 implies that the Bible and life should be read and done in the light of the gospel of Christ. If you want to find one verse, where in the world do we you know, have, you know, that the Bible says, put on the lens of Christ before you read the gospel. Here it is, verse 14. All right, You should read the Bible and life done in the light of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the narrative of the believer's ministry and life must converge. It must converge to flow in the narrative of the gospel. Now, believers are to live in the narrative of the gospel of the Bible and not live in the narrative of the gospel of the world. So in this world, there are two Gospels. There's one Gospel of the Bible, and then there's Gospel of the World, right? What are some of the narratives of the Gospel of the World? In the schools, 
the narrative is fulfilling your best potential, right? In the CCA, in the academics, that will save you. In the social media, the narrative is most, you know, is most influenced, uh, most many likes, uh, the fame you will get, like some Olympic champion right now, you know, that will save you. In fact, she was like kind of uh, fulfilling the grandma, right? Want to look good or the approval of the grandma. Don't we all do that? Approval of somebody. That will save you. In the companies, the narrative is promotions, power, money will save you. The idealistic, uh, the idealist narrative is we can change the world to a better place. That will save you. The pessimist narrative is we are victims of a dying world. The worst is yet to come. If you believe this, that kind of save us. You know? For the believers that the Christ is Lord, if we are honest with ourselves, as much as we want to live out the new form of ministry and life, we also like very much to leave out one of the narratives of the world. Why are we so attracted to leave out the narratives of the world to save ourselves? Pause and think with me for a moment. Isn't it because one of those narratives actually offers, it looks more attractive because it offers to veil, to cover, to mask our sins. Mask our fears of the fading glory in our lives. But just a few months ago, or a couple of months ago, I was trying to return to the game of tennis, all right, to get some uh, exercise for health reasons, all right. So I was hoping to help my muscles, all right, all my muscles to remember the narrative of my glorious days in my university. I was smashing, you know. I was, I was smashing the point-breaking serves, the power serves that must go down the court. And then return top-spin volley, you know, as hard as I tried. So I kind of swing this way very much and use a lot of my back muscle a lot, okay, trying to make it remember, you know, we did this before. Come on, give it to me. I have it. Well, my muscles in return, it helped me to remember that Actually, my age was catching up. One winning game brought me many days of pains and aches. And upon prayer and reflection, I do realize that I was playing the game not just to exercise for health reasons, but I was hoping to veil my fear of the fading glory of my youth. What are the fears that are driving you behind your mask? Have you wondered, what are the narratives you are playing out in your life if it isn't the gospel of Christ? Now back to the text. Paul is encouraging, uh, is encouraging the church of Corinth to go through a transformation process to do well in her ministry and life. And he persuades the church firstly to turn away from gazing at the fading glory of the old form of ministry. Secondly, to face 
the new form of ministry and life with the gospel. And as a result of turning away from the old and the new form, uh, or turning to the new form and face the new form, they will be able to unmask, the, to reflect the transforming ministry and life of the Holy Spirit. So what is the belief of a transforming ministry and life? Now, this is a crux that you are all been waiting for. Paul, in verse 18, says he believes not just that the Christ is Lord. Now, before you have me, all right? He believes not just that the Christ is Lord, but he also believes that the Lord is the Spirit. When the Spirit is the Lord of believers there would be transformation in the ministry and life. Again, to transform is to make mark change in a form. In other words, transformation is a process of making changes within a form, within some identifiable characteristics or markers of having some sort of form. Transformation is a process of shaping a form. Transformation is like the process of a, an, an organic and healthy embryo of an egg growing into a chick. In an embryo, all right, the science teacher can correct me, but this is what I know from my science, all right. In the embryo, the embryonic cell contains the DNA instructions to grow into different organ cells of a chick. From the embryonic cells, they are transformed into the brain cells, the eye cells, wing cells, the claw cells, and so on and so forth. All the organs forming up, and finally forming the chick uniquely. Each chick should be unique on its own. In 2015 and then 2018, the world discovered, hey, transformation is different from change, you know. And that comes from both Harvard Business and INSEAD review articles. Leaders of organization began to realize the difference between simply making changes for the sake of changes called change management and having true transformation in the organization. Change and then they make a list of this, and I think it's uh, good to know. And so I'll just list it here. The change is fixed to fix or mend the past versus transformation looks into the future of what can be. Change asks, what's wrong? Transformation asks, what if? Change thinks not another change initiative. Don't, don't change. Transformation thinks, what else is possible? Change thinks, when will this change end? Transformation thinks, can we see unmet needs? Change thinks, what does this mean for me? Transformation thinks, how could this be adapted for the community? Now this list here is what I have adapted to fit also into what Paul is arguing for. In other words, the world discovers and recognizes that transformation has to do, and it has a lot to do, with the inside of a person. 
They affirm that the Bible, or what the Bible already teaches. However, the Bible offers transformation far better. The good news is that a Christian never do it alone. Christians has a powerful ally and help to be transformed. Christ Jesus sent His Holy Spirit to enable and transform believers from the inside. Then they will be freed from being shaken by the changes happening on the outside. So it's almost an oxymoron if you think about it, right? Transformation occurs, but it's most stable when you transform in the spirit. If you were like me, who have then studied ecclesiology, which is a study of asking the first question, what is a church? And then you look into the long church history from Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Augustine of Hippo, and to the Catholic Church, and then after that, coming here and surveying the short history of Singapore churches, you and I would observe the life cycles of the birth, the growth to some degree of maturity, and then decline of churches. But that's not the end, my dear brethren. Each decline at the lowest point of Christianity in history also came the high points. Paul was at his lowest writing his epistles in prison some, some time. Yet, he became, he, he became one of the most powerful agents God has used to spread the gospel across the Middle East and then to Europe. Christians before 380 were continuously persecuted to the lowest point of dying as martyrs over and over. But yeah, the lowest point also point forth to the high point of Emperor Constantine recognized and then legalizing Christianity as a legit religion. After that, the dark ages of the Catholic Church seems to be at breaking point again. And it came the high point of Reformation, followed by the decline of the Anglo-Anglicans. But it came the point and the high point of the Puritan movement that founded the country, America. You can read about the Mayflower trip that they did and the missionary movements of USA that spread across the rest of the world. Why am I saying this? Because I would say, if you and I have observed, now we might be experiencing Christianity lowest point. I'm not just saying our church. I'm saying the world as a whole. We might be facing the lowest point. Why? Somebody have claimed, and you have heard this before, many people cannot tell apart Christians from those who are not. Many people claim they cannot tell Christians apart from those who are not. Would it be about time to pray for the tr spiritual transformation for the churches and our church? Many churches are going through changes. But how many are truly transformational in the spirit with the gospel of Christ? Now, Paul insists that God wants us to be transformed and transformation 
can happen. And how does transformation happen? Verse 18 tells us that it occurs as we unveil and unmask to behold the glory of the Lord. Now the word behold in the Greek actually is mirror gaze. All right, mirror gaze. We are to unmask, gaze into the eyes in the mirror, stare at ourselves, look deeply into the souls and minds to reflect and then examine ourselves. So for us, it's this. When was the last time we removed our mask of this world to look at our true self? When was the last time we stare in the mirror, look into the eyes, which are also known as the window to the souls, and see for who we are? If it's been a long time since you accepted Christ, then it's today that you are to reflect what's going on in your life, your inner soul. Which narrative are you following? Would you continue to then be like the worm eating the rod of this world? Or would you be a caterpillar transforming as you hear and feed on God's word and Christ? What do we see deep in our souls, deep down through our eyes in the mirror? Do we see the Spirit working in our souls to move us from caterpillars into butterflies? Where, then you might ask, where does transformation occur? Paul reveals in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be, that's the word again, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And testing, you may discern, and by testing that, you may discern what's the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. God speaks transformation, begins with the renewal of our mind, not our emotions. Following our emotions does not lead to transformation. Very often, our emotions mislead us to misinterpret the reality of life. We need to test our emotions with the truth of God's word and definitely the gospel. And John Newton affirms this. Now, he was a gospel minister and he's the famous author of the song, Amazing Grace. And he says this, Warm affections without knowledge can rise no higher than superstition. And the knowledge which does not influence the heart affection will only make a hypocrite. What does it look like as a believer transformed in the ministry of the Spirit? Verse 18 says that the Christian will morph from one degree of glory of Moses, which is based on the law, to the glory of Christ based on grace. Transformation is not a one-off event. It is a process. Verse 18 says that transformation into a likeness is from one degree of glory to another. It is actually from a literal translation, uh, translation from glory to glory, all right, in the actual text. 
is from glory to glory, which means it's an ever-increasing glory. The phrase denotes a splendor that steadily glows, a growth. And um, that is in contrast of the short-lived glory on Moses' face on Mount Sinai. True Christian transformation does not fade away. It is permanent and increasing in glory. Being transformed does not flip-flop or cancel out increase like Two step back, uh, two step forward, back, one step back. That is not the case. It's a going, it's not going back to the same position after you are being transformed. No. It's being transformed from the inside, a process that you are something new. What does the transformation increase look like more and more for all of us? A Christian final form will look like the resurrected Christ in the Bible. That's why Paul used the word transform, metamorpho, is in parallel to Matthew and Mark. Metamorpho in transfiguration. Christ was transformed. We are to be transformed, to be like Christ. The believer will be all new, splendor, bright, perfect, free from sin and the blemishes of the world. In order to be morphed, to be like Christ, we must be transformed according to the spiritual DNA in the Bible and not the broken DNA of the world, which is very much more like the virus, consuming without giving back. Christian transformation is the process of increasing, converging, move towards bringing together the ministry of the Spirit and doing life in the world. This like the light rays going through a magnifying glass, converging, bringing together the rays with increasing intensity into a brilliant and most powerful beam to light up life itself. That is the work of the Spirit to transform us. And God willing, being transformed completely is when life is ministry of the Spirit. Though Christians may never be fully transformed to be like Christ on earth, we have the hope that the Spirit of the Gospel is our Lord. And when the Spirit of the Gospel is our Lord, we are being transformed in ministry and life. And accordingly, we will reflect the purpose of our life. That is to bring glory to the risen Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the preached word of God.